I'm Larry Fong, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey everybody, it's episode 22 of the Cinematography Podcast. And what a fantastic podcast we have, but I don't want to give it away just yet. Ben, what's going on? What's going on in your world? Well, in my world, um, <laughs> I'm about to be a dad in about two weeks. Next time I see you, you will probably have, you know, at least contributed half to producing a new life form. That's not true because we're, uh, I'm going to be seeing you next week. Oh, okay. Then I lied. That's more than likely... I'd say at least 60% chance that the baby won't have been born yet. So, uh, yeah, so that doesn't have much to do with cinematography, although there is something to say about a certain aperture that will be opening. <laughs> oh, wow. I, 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 I can't wait for your, for your wife, who never listens to the show, to listen to this yeah, episode. In order for her to, to be To talk offended. about the aperture being her. Yeah. She's the aperture. <laughs> oh. Anyway. <laughs> So, Ilya. <laughs> Thanks for going there. This is why we have that explicit, uh, you know, yes. that E next to our podcast. Exactly. So. Uh, we tell people where babies come from. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's vaginas. As long as we use the technically correct terms, I think we're good. We're good. <laughs> so, Ilya, I was actually more interested in a cinematography-based way about where you were a week ago, which is the National Association of Broadcasters Convention, a.k.a. NAB. Yes, I, I was there. We talked about it a little bit last time about what we thought we might see. And I don't know. We, we saw some things, but any pleasant surprises? Blackmagic made a cool little camera that's going to set the world on fire, I think. I was checking that out. It made me I am interested in it. And yet I have been very interested in Blackmagic cameras before, and it has taken them a long time to come to market. That's true. And this won't be any exception. They don't say exactly when, but end of the year, which means end of 2018. But that really means maybe Q1 2019. So, like, tell me about this interesting new Blackmagic camera that you saw at NAB. It's 1300 bucks. It does 4K raw internally as well as a whole bunch of other things. And yeah, I think most people will be pretty excited for the fact that it's 1300 bucks, but the images do look really good. So, uh, and it's it, like a DSLR kind of form factor. It is. It's a little bit wider, a little bit flatter. It's an MFT mount, which is stands for micro four thirds. It's got a decent enough size sensor. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting little camera. It will be definitely something to watch. And I'm sure that the uh, DSLR slash mirrorless camera makers out there are all going to be paying attention to that. Hmm. I'm very interested to see that. Any other uh, fun surprises? Uh, VR is dead. Well, I won't say it's dead, but VR is uh, anemic and you can definitely get a understanding of the state of what was sort of a, a fad in years past by how it looks at NAB and the dollars that are investing in VR are waning for sure. So there's a lot less of that going on. There is still some, but it's not the way that there was people talking a big game, how everything was going to be VR. And we talked about VR back in the time when you were experimenting with VR and such, Indeed. but, uh, I'll say it's exactly as a, as I predicted, this is a, a fad and it will not 
uh, change the world, certainly not in this incarnation. It will have to go away for a while and then come back again as something else before I think uh, it gains some more traction. Like 3D, it'll have to disappear a few times, and it's only a matter of time before VR is sort of out of the mainstream thought process. Well, I think VR is probably here for good in terms of gaming. I think gamers are into it. Gamers are into it, yes. I think that there are amazing educational applications. It's just as a replacement for filmmaking, not quite so much. No, but that's where what all the the hoopla was about, you know, six months ago. So uh, and a year before that. So so, yeah, but uh, not too much to write home about evolutionary year, not revolutionary year. Uh, interesting. It's a lot of more of the same, but uh, some new products in various categories. Actually, we're going to do a little write up and put it on the Cam Noir blog, which is the official website of the cinematography podcast. You, if you're listening right now, have probably found us through iTunes or maybe Stitcher or maybe Google Play Music. Podbean. Podbean. Downcast. Any of those things. But you can also find our official page. And if you, for whatever reason, can't download an episode, you can stream it directly from camnoir.com. And we have a little bit of other content there that kind of focuses on things that are not the podcast, but not much, but actually going to put an NAB write up on there. So that'll be cool. Cool. So that means we can stop this now and go right into the episode. That's exactly right. So Ben, Ben. Yes. Who's, yes, on, the sh- who's on the show today? Well, the man who we described as being the coolest sounding name in all of cinematography, if not all of show business. Johnny Durango is on here, and Johnny Durango has a has a pretty big distinction this year. He does. He was named of one of the very few uh, cinematographers to watch by ASC Magazine, by the American Society of Cinematographers. Pretty big honor. Pretty yeah, awesome. He's like he's a young guy. You can tell he's got like a great future ahead of him. Uh, lots of good work already under his belt, and just one of the most amazing attitudes. So, without further ado, here is Johnny Durango. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Johnny Durango, thank you so much for coming out here to beautiful downtown Burbank. Of course. To the Cinematography Podcast. So you, you've heard the podcast before, so you know the first question that I have teed up, which is my theory that cinematographers either start when they're reading a script, they are seeing pictures with compositions, or they're thinking about lighting. And you uh, can also tell me that the basic premise of my question is bullshit, and that's fine too. But I just wondered which school you to find yourself in I think it's a good premise but for me it really depends on the script and it depends on the directors that I'm working with if it's directors that I've worked with before and I know sometimes I know the way they work and the mm-hmm. way they want to approach things so for me it's completely dependent on the material sometimes I see things more visually in terms of camera movement and the composition other times it's the lighting yeah so we'll get way into your background but you know, your general background, and this also plays into my theory, did you come up in the lighting department or did you come up in the camera department? So I came up in the film school department. As nice. Soon as, as soon as I came out of film school, I told people I was a DP. So That's smart. It, I always, I, I, I've talked to people who are like afraid to do that. I'm like, just do that. It's, it's a double-edged sword. When I was in college, I shot probably 25, 16 millimeter shorts. Anybody who I would run into and I knew that they were in a directing class or production class and they were going to be shooting a film, I'd be like, hey, you don't really want to do that yourself. You want to be a director. How about I shoot your film for you? What, what school is this? By this the way? is Columbia College in Chicago. Nice. And it was a great experience just for that. I think film school, too, is all of what you make of it. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's absolutely not necessary. You can absolutely learn in the field. And there's something to be said for that. But being in school gave me that flexibility to just find people and to shoot as many projects as I could. 
So this is backing us uh, well into where I would take this next, which is what made you want to be a cinematographer? For instance, like when we were talking to Larry Fong, Larry Fong started doing special effects makeup and, we, you know, like whatever needed to be done. And it, and it took him a while to settle on cinematography. But it sounds like in college, you're already there. What made you start? What, what made you go down that path in the first place? Well, I'm going to jump back a little further than that, because my freshman year of college, I was enrolled in criminal justice classes. Nice. Like I grew up in a small town. Film was nothing that I would have ever thought of as a career. So just to be clear, because you're a cinematographer, there are criminals running free. Go ahead. <laughs> that's, that's probably the case. <laughs> the world's probably actually safer. I don't know that I would have been great in criminal justice. <laughs> but what happened was I, was I was getting ready to go into criminal justice. And my entire high school and before that, I loved movies. I went to the theater whenever I could. It was an escape for me. I, I had a father who was really strong on work ethic. And I grew up in sort of a... Uh, household where you didn't have a lot of choice you sort of did what you were told and you sort of fell in line and Mm -hmm. great guy and and my work ethic is incredible because of it but my escape was to to go to the video store and grab some movies and sneak into my bedroom and just like relax and escape and that's for me film is amazing because to me it's just a total escape and that's what i love about film and what were your comfort food films at the time oh man the the movie that made me want to go into film would have been the usual suspects nice in 95 i remember renting it from a video store that we didn't go to very often and i watched that movie and the fact that you could manipulate an audience just it blew my mind it was very hitchcockian in the way that it was done where you know you've you served one thing and by the end of the film you're like i can't believe that i didn't see that coming and i thought it was an amazing thing yeah so at that point i was like film would be really cool and my parents were kind of like are you sure you want to do criminal justice because that's not really the safest field and we we really want you to be safe and nothing to happen to you they're like is there anything else you'd want to do and i was like well film but do people really, you know, do that as a living? And they said, well, you should look into it. And so that was sort of how I got into film school. So I uh, went to community college for a year, didn't do any criminal justice classes, just did general edge classes, mm-hmm. and then went to Columbia College. And were you in Chicago? Did you grow up in Chicago? Uh, I grew up about an hour and a half southwest of the city. Okay. So cool. it wasn't it wasn't too far away, but it was just far enough away where I could focus on what I wanted to do. And it was amazing when I got there because my whole education up to that point, I was like probably a 2.6 GPA or something like that. But I fell in love with film and I jumped up to like 3.9 or something like that. But the cool part about that was I went in thinking I wanted to be a director and, and I was sure that's what I wanted to do. And then I got there and my very first production class I had was uh, called Tech One and you got hands on with a Bolex. We were rolling 16 millimeter, 16 millimeter film within, I don't know, two days being in the class, which was the coolest thing ever. And I had this amazing teacher who became a mentor. His name was Ron Pitts. He mm-hmm. was Um, he's passed away within the last few years, but he was Chicago's first black filmmaker. And he was there for the 68 Democratic National Convention. Oh, wow. He was there when Malcolm X was assassinated. He, he's honestly sort of like the African-American Forrest Gump. He was at all these amazing events, but he sort of took me under his wing and it was just really, really cool to learn from him. And I just realized that there was a whole new way of looking at movies before I was looking at actors and performances and whether I liked the story. And when I had the camera in my hand, suddenly I was seeing stuff that I had never seen before. And I was like, all right, this is what I want to do. And from that point on, it was a pursuit to be a cinematographer instead of a director. Nice. So, so while you're in college, you, you made that pivot. I did. And I do think it's interesting because I think a lot of people, I think if you were to go to a first semester film class and say, who here wants to be a director? You know, if there were 30 people in that class, you know, 28 hands would probably go up in most classes. Sure. And the other two wanted to be screenwriters. But, you know, cinematography is something that you don't really start to understand till you're until you're really doing it. And you're coming up, I'm assuming, in the era when digital was available. 
So it's sort of like on the cusp. This yeah. would have been about 1999. Got so it. this is like the Sony... Uh, PD-150. Yeah, exactly. Right there. Is it PD-150 the one that did mini-DV and DV cam? It did, yeah. Because that was that was exciting for <laughs> mini-DV and DV cam. I still have a PD-150. Nice. I love that camera. It was like the XL1. Everyone was all excited about the XL1. I'm like, you guys don't even know. Exactly. Got the real deal here. So, so when you were in film school at that time, because like I, I talk to people who are in film school now and it's like, in some film schools, they will force themselves to do some film work with actual film. Sure. But the, and a lot of film, and I think in my former film school at University of Central Florida, I think it's all digital now. Like, you know, they give you a DSLR in first semester, and by the end, maybe you're lucky and working with an Alexa or something. Right. So did digital play into your learning at all, or at that point was... Not while I was in college. Yeah. There was a few directing classes where they did it just out of the fact that you could roll a lot of footage, and the yeah. directors could go back and look at their, their films or the projects, but for me, it was all 16 millimeter, which mm-hmm. was really cool and a great learning experience. I don't miss it at all, <laughs> but I love the fact that I right came there with up you. with that. Yeah. 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 Were they having you like shoot reversal film or were you shooting a lot of negative or? So again, that, that tech one class, the very first thing was black and white reversal. Mm-hmm. We did that. And then when you jump to tech two, you got to go to color. Nice. Yeah. It's pretty exciting because that opens a whole <laughs> a whole nother door of learning. And so if, if you jump back to my first class, it was all about composition and figuring out how to move the camera, where to put the camera and all that. Mm-hmm. And I remember for my final project in the first class, I took out a lighting kit and my first day in this kitchen that I was going to light, I took the camera out and I said, I don't know how to light. I've never lit before. Uh-huh. So all I did was I looked around the room and I looked at how the light was falling naturally and I tried to mimic it with my lights as as well as I could and that yeah. was sort of my start for lighting was I just looked around me and I said okay how does night light naturally fall and then I'll take that and try to sculpt it into something a little more moody do they have cinematography courses there that you took oh absolutely yeah I mean Columbia College is pretty incredible as far as the cinematographers that they've churned out uh, Michael Goy who was the ASC mm-hmm. president went to Columbia uh, Mauro Fiore uh, Janusz Kaminski so it's a great program as yeah. far as cinematography goes that's pretty awesome. And I mean, it's like, I always think of Columbia College as like, that's the only Ivy League school that has a strong film program that I know of. Am I right in that or am I completely wrong? Columbia College is Chicago. There's Columbia University. Columbia University. And, and, I know you're and there is, out, so. there's a film program there though, right? There is. Okay. So Columbia College, Chicago, is that related to the Columbia College that's out it's here? It's not related, but Columbia College, Chicago is actually the largest film school in the world at some point. Really? Like right when I went, I think it was the largest film school in the world. How many students are there at any given time? I don't know the answer to that one, unfortunately, but it's it has a large film program. And like I said, their cinematography program is amazing. John Gulasarian, who shot like crazy and mm-hmm. is doing a lot of films, went there. Um, he was actually there at the same time I was. Ken Sang, who shot Deadpool and is just cranking out movies. He, nice. He graduated a couple of years before I got there. So cinematography program is probably their most renowned program at this point. Well, and I always think that with film school, there's the aspect of learning your craft, but there's also networking. And the people that you go to film school with are people that you're inevitably going to end up working with if they work and you work your ass off. So have you found that to be the case, having gone to Columbia? Did you did you find that you made connections there that paid off when you came out to L.A.? Yes and no. As far as directors go, there were no directors that I'm aware of at the time that I went that have sort of risen to that level and mm-hmm. are, are actively working. I've seen it in the generations after me. Jordan Voigt Roberts, the director who just did uh, the new King Kong movie, came out of Columbia oh, probably wow. six, seven years after I was there. Because yeah. he's, he's young. I mean, that guy's got to be 30 years old, maybe. Oof, makes me angry. <laughs> you and me both. Whenever young people come in, you know, like when we interviewed Rom- Roman Vasyanov, I was like, you know, Roman is 
maybe 30 now but then of course i don't know if you listen to the interview but like roman went through a program that was tantamount to having been a cinematographer for like 800 years yeah that's actually probably my favorite podcast that you guys have done just because it makes me want to cry and at the same time i'm so in <laughs> awe you know this is so much of this business is being at the right place at the right time oh yes and having the craft i mean there's so many people who have the craft and to me being a cinematographer is more about the relationships mm. and your presence on set like you can you can be super talented and never work and you can be lesser talented and work a ton because people like working with you yeah i like to try to be super talented and just have a presence on set where people want to be working with me now if that makes sense what would you say if you were to describe the approach of the program at at uh, columbia what would you say was the approach so the approach you started in a tech class where you got hands on a, a bolex and then you would put together a film you would shoot two projects per semester and then you go into tech two where you'd also shoot two projects per semester. And then from that point, you would split off into everybody did tech classes, yeah. whether you were directing, editing, shooting, whatever. After that, the cinematography program broke off and there was various levels of lighting classes. There was camera seminar. There was um, some higher level cinematography classes that the, the mm. names are escaping me right now. It was, you know, years <laughs> ago. So many years. And did, uh, did, did they bring back people like Janusz Kaminski to speak to you guys at any point? So that's interesting. When I was there, the only people who came back and spoke, and it was an outside event, was George Tillman and Bob Title, mm -hmm. who did Men of Honor at the time. They came back and talked about Men of Honor. But as far as cinematography, there was no cinematographers that came back at that point. I'm, I'm hoping it's changed now, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, it, so what were they preparing you for? I always kind of go through these like mental exercises about how I, if I was to create a, a film program, how would I prepare people for the professional world? But how did they prepare you to go out and work in the professional world? It's funny because I'm going to go back to the, I think film school is all what you make of it. You know, it's, it's pretty by the numbers. They teach you how to use the gear. They teach you about the craft. If you're a director, which I never took any directing classes there, I'm sure it was very intensive on how to work with actors. But the freedom to go out and make the films, I think, is the thing that really is a game changer. Yeah. And that's why I said, you know, whether you do it without going to film school and you just real world experience. And that's what's so cool about the digital revolution that when I went to film school, you only made a half a dozen films, you know, unless yeah. you went out and really actively fought to shoot other people's projects. You were only making a handful of films. Now with the digital technology, man, you can do whatever you want. If you're driven, and that's the whole, I think, fight of this business is to be driven. Yeah. The people I say make it are the hustlers. You're never going to get anywhere unless you really have that drive. True. Well, that's the hardest part, too, because there's nights when I just want to sit in and, and honestly, I believe if Madden football did not exist, I'd already have an Academy Award. <laughs> like, like that's, that is the struggle and the struggle is real because this business is so much as you know about networking and yeah. just going out meeting those directors. If you didn't go to AFI, you didn't go to USC, like, like I said, I went to Columbia College yeah. and I didn't have the luxury of a lot of those directors taking off. You know, the guys who are going to USC and, and AFI are the ones who are coming out and making incredible work and those cinematographers know them from that point. So someone like me, you have to get out there. You have to network. You have to meet the people. But is there an alumni base or something that you tapped into when you came out here? Well, let's the, talk about like how far after college did you did you make your way out here? So I came out here and I did, and this is another side note, I did the producing program when I came out here. And it's because I genuinely enjoy producing. So if you look at my website and anything else, it says producer slash director of photography. Yeah. I produced two features, one pilot and countless short form stuff. So 
I took it upon myself to know that I'm not always going to get the jobs that I want. Yeah. So sometimes I'm going to have to make those jobs. And the first film that I really actively went out and raised money for and produced was a movie called Lost on Purpose, which ended up starring Jane Kesmerick from Malcolm in the Middle, oh, wow. C. Thomas Howell, James Lafferty from One Tree Hill, and Octavia Spencer had a small role in it too. Oh, nice. And that was yeah, the yeah. first movie that the Nelms Brothers, who I eventually did Small Town Crime with, which was just in theaters and is now on demand. But that's how that all came about. We put that movie together ourselves, went out and made it, and that snowballed into us getting our next movie, which was Waffle Street with Danny Glover and James Lafferty. And that led to Small Town Crime, which is John Hawks, Octavia Spencer, Anthony Anderson, Robert Forrester. Very classy. Yeah. So a couple of Academy Award nominees, Academy Award winner. <laughs> but again, it's all about going out and making your own way, I think. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up because out here, I come across a lot of actors, for instance, who are figuring out like, oh, I'm not going to get cast if I don't go, if I don't tell people who I am. So they'll go out and they'll make a short film or they make a web series or something like that, basically to build themselves a reel. And some of some of the more motivated ones will go out and make features or will will find money. But but honestly, I don't know that I've ever spoken to a DP before who kind of said the same thing. At what point did you realize you were going to have to put together your own films in order to, uh, I'm not saying in order to work, but in order to do the kind of work that you were looking to do? Yeah, you know, it was probably about 10 years in when I was like, I haven't had that big break yet and yeah. I want to get out there and I want to be doing the kind of movies that I want to be doing. And most of that was you can shoot great projects that look beautiful, but if nobody sees it, nobody knows who you are and yeah. you're never going to get the movies you wanted or you want. So that was a, a big thing for me. And I wanted to do a movie with a cast that people at least recognize the faces. And I was one of these guys who there's a lot of DPs and a lot of great DPs who just shoot movie after movie after movie after movie and you go to your their IMDB page and they got 60 feature credits but you've never heard of the movie know, you don't so know any many. of the actors and I didn't want to be that person I wanted to be the person that you might go to IMDB and you might only have you know six features but you know the actors in them you've heard of the directors yeah they've got a great script and and for me that's how I choose a project it's got to either be a great director that I want to work with an incredible script or a cast that you know and respect mm-hmm you know, you talk about like people who have movies that you've never heard of. The weirder ones to me are like when you're looking on somebody's IMDb page and it's movie after movie filled with people that you've heard of, but you've never heard of any of the movies like the movie. And, and it's like, where did those come from and what happened to them and who hurt sure. you? It, and it's amazing, too, with on demand and all these other outlets now. Yeah. You'll sometimes see a movie that has a huge cast and you've never heard of the movie. It, it blows my mind. So when you got out here, so you were 10 years in before you started pursuing producing your own stuff. Right. So you landed and I, I've had this conversation with a lot of people who came out here to be a DP, but then ended up in the camera department or ended up le one person in particular who said, I'm not going to pursue it because I don't feel like schlepping gear for, for 10 years for other DPs. And I was like, just be a DP. What led you to that? What, why didn't you go down the path that uh, so many other people would go down? I think part of it was because I, I found work immediately when I said I was a DP and it was sort of a weird thing where as soon as I got out of college, I was blessed enough to get an internship for the first six weeks after I finished where I toured with the singer Jewel. Oh, nice. And I shot her U.S. tour. Oh, wow. North, North American tour for six weeks. That's quite an so, internship. Yeah. I went straight on the road. And that's and, like peak Jewel, like late 90s, right? Uh, that would have been 2002. It would have been oh. the This Way tour. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's a big so, deal. So it was a great tour. I came back off of that and I decided that I was going to start hanging out at rental houses. I wanted to get a job at a rental house because I didn't have enough money to just go buy a camera. And mm. I wanted access to the gear because I, I had started this thing in more college where I just shot and I shot and I shot. And that's that's how you hone your craft. You know, you get better 
by by practicing. And so uh, I'm sorry to make you back up. So you did the Jewel tour, and then did you land in LA after? Oh, that? so what happened was I came out and I did my last semester in LA. I did that producing program in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Uh, over on the CBS Radford lot. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So it was really cool. I got to be, I was in my senior year of college and I was on the CBS Radford lot for, I can't remember how many weeks. And That's pretty cool. Malcolm in the Middle was shooting there. And it, it was just really cool. And then, you know, oddly enough, 10 years later, I worked with Jane, which was pretty cool. That's awesome. But so out of that, I got that internship through the uh, Columbia College program based in LA. So they were, they were gearing up the internship. Oh, nice. And so I took that internship, which was amazing. They took two people from all of Columbia College who, who applied for it. And I did that tour. I came back, was hanging out at the rental houses. and which, was, were, which were your main rental hangs? So this was a place called, I think they're still around, uh, Hollywood Studio Rentals. Oh, yes. I know them well. Which was over here in Burbank. Yeah, they're not around anymore. No? All right. I, I, they closed up. I remember, I, I've, for all I know, I might have met you there because I rented stuff from them all the time. Nice. So I was hanging out and I was talking to Rob and the other people who worked there and, and were there at the time. And they kept telling me they were going to hire me. 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 So I kept going in and out. I interviewed. I was waiting for them to make me an offer to say how much, you know, I was, I was excited. I thought I had a job for sure. And it just didn't happen. And one day I was in there and there was this guy who ran the cruise for the TV series uh, Eliminate. It was one of the first <laughs> dating shows. And so one of the rental managers introduced me to him and said, you know, he'd be a good fit. And this guy was like, are you ready to shoot network TV? And I'm like, Absolutely. <laughs> Eliminate. Yeah, yeah, which was on the WB, so network-ish. Hey, kid, are you ready for the big leagues? Right. I got so, a job for you on Eliminate. And and this is where, like, my <laughs> upbringing and the way my father raised me, just a hard work ethic, and you just do what you have to do to make it. Uh, this guy says, all right, so we're shooting an all-star show in Vegas. We're not going to pay you. You got to get yourself there. You got to put yourself up. But if you want to shoot fourth camera for us, you can. And if we like you, we'll bring you back on another tour. And so I was like... All right, I got to do this. Nice. And and he was picking up an underwater housing, and I'm like, "What's the underwater housing for?" And he said, "Well, we're gonna do uh, some some pool shots and some hot tub mm-hmm. shots." And I was like, "Oh, that's awesome because I shoot underwater." And he's like, "Great." He's like, "All right, take the rig and meet me in Vegas in two weeks." You were well, that guy. Well, I I had been certified to dive a couple months prior. I had never mm-hmm. actually shot underwater. So I found Oh, so you were that other guy. I was the other guy, Got but it. I was not the guy who was going to get myself into a situation that I couldn't handle. So for two weeks straight, I found a friend who had a swimming pool and I went and I tied wetsuits to, to bricks and I sank them in a swimming pool and I practiced swimming with the underwater rig for, for two weeks every single day. And then on the last day, I get a group of friends to come over and act out like a fake episode of Eliminate in the swimming pool and I shut all the <laughs> underwater stuff. So by the time the two weeks rolled around, I hopped in my car, drove myself to Vegas and shot a fourth camera for them, did a bunch of B-roll, that kind of stuff. I was, yeah. when they were in a limousine, there was two A and B camera and I was sort of squeezed in the middle with a DVX, no, not, not DVX, VX 2000, I think it was, Sony. Uh, that was a Sony camera, yeah. VX 2000. So I had the VX 2000, I was sitting in the middle. The update of the VX 1000. And yeah, I shot the, uh, I shot the fourth camera and then they brought me on for the rest of the season to do stuff. Wow. Yeah. Eliminate. My mom yeah. to this day is still so ashamed of that. I come from a very conservative Christian family and mm-hmm. I had a great upbringing, but she did not want people knowing that I was shooting that show. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty bad. I, I enjoy thinking back about the past because how do you know where you're at now if you can't look back on where you were? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, and it's, there's no shame in working on something like Eliminate when... I was 22 years old. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's, that's a great gig for a 22 year old. Well, and the fact that you that you went and... I mean, I, I think this is something that would be important for anyone who is coming up to, 
to hear is like you were basically offered an internship on Eliminate and you spent a week learning how to how to uh, run an underwater camera w- rig and became an expert at that so that you could get there and then that got you your job. Yeah, and for me, there's there's so much I've heard people say so much about know your value, know your value, know your value, and it's great. You should know your value, but when you're coming up, pay your dues. Don't be afraid to yeah. take a job for free. I did two internships on two feature films. One was called Unconditional Love. It was a New Line Cinema movie with Kathy Bates, Rupert Everett, and Dan Aykroyd. That was PJ Hogan, who did My Best Friend's Wedding, his follow-up to My Best Friend's Wedding. And I was an office intern for free. Yeah. And it was great. when They they liked me so much in the office that the production coordinator, her sister was also a production coordinator. And when they were opening up the next movie, it was a movie called Novocaine with Steve Martin and Elias Kataeus. I know it well. Okay. So I was the camera intern on that movie. Oh, wow. So I bounced from unconditional love to Novocaine and that's where I got my start in camera. Was, yeah, I, was, I was working for Artisan when they were making that movie. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. It was it was a good experience. I really got, you know, hands on. They let me load some magazines from time to time. And nice. Yeah, it was really cool. So is that before or after Eliminate that you were doing those? So that was be, so that was the that was the progression. I did those movies in college. Yeah. I came out here and now I'm on my own trying to carve out a real career and pay my bills. Yeah. And I'm still willing to work for free because you got to get your foot in the door somehow. And that's that's sort of my thing is don't be afraid to work hard and take free work. I still shoot stuff for free. Yeah. You know? No, I get I've it. I made some of my best contacts and relationships on stuff that I did for free. Well, and also when you're working for free, you can kind of have a little bit more authorship or have a little bit more leeway or the, you know, whoever if if a director is lucky enough to have you come out and do something for them for free and you pitch them an idea that maybe wouldn't fly on a Doritos commercial, sure. they'll probably let you try it if it's if it works at all. You yeah, know? that's the fun part. It's all about like I said again, it's all about relationships. This yeah. whole industry is about building up your your network. Are you saying like this is awesome. I'm working, you know, I'm working in the camera department. I'm kind of living my dream. I'm right out of college. Or at that point, were you already kind of planning for, okay, when am I going to be able to make the leap to long form or dramatic or some of the other stuff you've done? Yeah, absolutely. Narrative was always the the end game. And Eliminate was cool because the way that the head guy who ran the camera department set it up, he had it structured so Warner Brothers credited all the operators as directors of photography. So in oh, the credits, nice. it was director of photography in your name. So there was like three director of photography per episode. But I felt like, okay, I've got a network credit. I was shooting this. And after that, again, going back to the internship, I met a, a woman who worked in the art department. She was an art PA. And her boyfriend was the producer's assistant on Novocaine. So when I moved out to LA, he was the only person I knew in LA. And we became good friends. And he had gone to Emerson in Boston, mm-hmm. met a girl who interned on a movie out there. It was a 35 millimeter feature. They shot the movie and all kinds of drama. The negative was stolen. There was all what? Kinds of, yeah, the negative was stolen. Somebody was trying to shop the movie. So there were brothers who made the movie and they had a falling out. And the one brother was the producer. He tried to shop the movie, tried to sell it at some festivals. The other brother got in a big legal battle with them, tried to get the negative back. Finally, they got it back. It's like the oasis of film directors. Crazy. Yeah. So four years later, they got it back. They got a cut together and they decided that they needed to do reshoots. And this was right after I'd come back from a limited, maybe a couple couple months later. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, my buddy said, I I know a DP who's great. You Uh know, we should bring him in to interview him. So I went in and I interviewed and they loved me. And at this time, the woman who was now, she was a PA at the time, but four years later, she had a, she had, had some success. She was hosting on Entertainment Tonight, and she was going to produce the movie and get it together for her boyfriend, who was the director. So they brought me in. We did about five five or six days of scheduled reshoots, and 
it went so well and they were so happy they decided to recast the lead female actress and we reshot 70% of the movie. What? So yeah, so at the third at Wait, but the brothers are still like suing each other? No, what? no, the the one brother who directed it got all the footage back. Uh, got a cut together. The other brother I never met. Got it. I, got I it. don't know what happened. I have no idea what that story even The Liam Gallagher of the two. Sure. So I have no idea what happened with that. I'm working on this Oasis comparison. I, I like it. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I'll get there. <laughs> so what happens is I end up reshooting 70% of the movie. And the movie then kind of sits in limbo for another two or three years. And then 2007, that movie, which was my first 35 feature, which I shot at 23 years old, plays at Tribeca, which was pretty cool. So what's the name of the movie? Uh, It was a movie called In the Land of Merry Misfits. Nice. I never saw the light of day. It played at Tribeca. It played at Tribeca. And that was the end of it. Well, you know, that's actually like playing at a festival like Tribeca or South by or whatever. That is, that is a victory lap for any filmmaker if you get that far. Absolutely. So I was now 26, and I went to Tribeca, saw the movie play in a theater. Sweet. Really cool experience, and I just kept plugging away. You know, you just got to keep keep grinding and keep fighting. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing, though. Yeah. So what did that lead to? So that led to me just continuing to shoot. I picked, mm-hmm. It's funny because it's not like people came knocking on my door after the movie played at Tribeca. It was like, hey, I have this feather in my cap. I, I had a movie that played at Tribeca. It was 35 feature. I'm 26 years old now, and I'm just going to keep shooting. And I think that's probably what led to me four years later saying, hey, I'm going to go make my own movie because... It's just not, I'm still not getting the projects I want to get. Well, and what you're saying kind of echoes something that Rachel Morrison said too. It's like she played Sundance, what was it, like seven times in in six years or something like that. And I was like, was, so I assume your phone must have been ringing off the hook. And she's like, no. That blew me away when I heard that because I, yeah. I listened to the podcast while I was driving here. And <laughs> I was shocked when I heard that. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and to me that that was shocking, but it but it's unfortunately the truth. And I think it's something that, Probably, again, like, you know, people who aren't in the business don't realize that it's like you make a film that goes to one of the top festivals. It could go to Berlin. It could go anywhere. Sure. And that it's a nice feather in your cap, but that doesn't stop the hustle, as as you were saying. So it it maybe just kind of gives people like, you know, 1% more of a chance to listen to you when you call. Oh, oh, he, he shot a feature that went to Tribeca. For sure. Do you go back and revisit that feature at all? I haven't seen it in probably 10 years. Yeah, it's been it's been a long time. I actually don't have a copy of it. Oh, really? Yeah. Did, did it ever get released? On it didn't TV? get released. There's nowhere. I even looked on YouTube the other day to see if it existed anywhere, and it doesn't exist. The filmmakers should just like stick it up on Vimeo for free or yeah, something. At I have this no point. idea what happened, but it, it's okay because the cinematography was better than the actual movie itself. <laughs> so you are currently featured in American Cinematographer, which I'm super jealous. I've always wanted to work on a project that got featured in AC. Uh, and you're featured as one of 12 cinematographers to watch? Yeah, one of uh, 12 rising stars of cinematography. All right. Yeah. So how does that come about? So I think it had a lot to do with the last feature film I shot, this movie, Small Town Crime. Yeah. And I think with it playing at South by Southwest, I finally got an audience to see some of my work. And I'm really proud of the work. None I'm of those sketchy Tribeca audiences, but the real South by Southwest audiences. I just S- want to make, yeah. There's such a difference with South by Southwest too, from <laughs> other f- festivals you that know, I've been to. It's such a cool vibe at that festival. It, it was so different from any place I've ever been. I would go back. I, well, I am going back. I'm, I'm doing a panel for Panasonic. I'm oh, actually nice. a panelist this year at South by. So last year I was there with a the movie. This year I'm going to be a panelist. That's awesome. Which is pretty cool. And is that the first time you uh, had a film that played South by? It is. 
but I really, really hope that I have another one. So I have reason to go back. <laughs> I, I hear that it's just like overload of everything. It's amazing. Like I, I was gearing up to go down there and I was like, all right, I'm going to play the smart. I'm going to pull out the guide. I'm going to go through the thing on my cell phone. I'm going to see yeah. everything that I want to see. I'm going to see some shows, some bands. I didn't see a single band the entire time I was down there. I think I made it to two panels the entire time I was down there. It's just crazy. I saw maybe three films. Uh-huh. I saw my film four times, but other films, I think I saw maybe, maybe <laughs> Well, three. you have to see your film. But it's such an amazing experience just connecting with all these other artists and filmmakers. And the, the vibe is just crazy. It, it's cool. It's, it's all people making stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I again, I've I've never I've never been there, but I've been to Fantastic Fest, which is not it's not the same thing, but Tim League who runs the Alamo Drafthouse mm-hmm. does it and it's like all genre and I always tell people it's the best film festival I've ever personally even attended. Like I would just I wish I could go there every year. It's so great. That's awesome. And and I hear that South by is sort of like that vibe on steroids and the steroids are on crack. Yeah. So well, you got to you got to make a point to get down there. Yeah. So Small Town Crime, uh was that one of the ones that you also served as a producer on? I did not. This one actually the budget increased quite a bit uh-huh. and it was outside money. Oh, nice. So I was brought in as the director of photography. because but, but producing stuff that you shot, producing your own material, led you to do Small Town It did, Crime. because the directors who are two of the most incredible directors I've ever had the privilege of working with, mm-hmm. Ian, Ian and Esham Nelms, they directed Lost on Purpose, which was the movie that I produced with them. Then we went on to do Waffle Street, where I was not a producer. I also came on just as director of photography, but Lost on Purpose directly led to Waffle Street. Yeah. And then the same producers of Waffle Street uh, asked them if they had any other material and they said yeah we've got another movie that we'd love to do but it's nothing like Waffle Street it's a crime thriller and it's a bigger budget and I think everybody sort of leapt at the the chance to do a bigger movie with a bigger cast and just a different sort of story. So what's it like working with two directors? I don't think we've ever inter- interviewed anyone who worked with co-directors. You know it's incredible because I have at least three sets of directors that I work with mm-hmm. which is really interesting and these guys are incredible because and I'll tell you a story about John Hawks on the set of the movie just to show you how in sync they are because a lot of times directors will give you slightly differing points of view or different notes but these guys because they write together and they work together in the pre-production process they hash everything out in the writing process so when you're on set with them you can ask one of them something and get the same answer from the other and that's exactly what happened with John Hawks John Hawks pulled one of the directors aside and asked a question about the character and then I think he was testing the other director because he pulled him aside a couple minutes later and asked him the same question. And he was flabbergasted by the fact that he got the exact same answer, I think, word for word. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I always wonder about that. Like, to me, the biggest enigma are co-directors or directors who also shoot their own stuff. You know, it's kind of like the two polar opposites. Sure. It's like one is like taking this point of view and fracturing it out into into three people. And one is compressing these two jobs into one. Right. That's interesting. So that goes to that, that place at South by. Can, is there anything you can talk? Because like, I, I, again, I've seen the trailer and I apologize. I haven't seen the actual film. Mm-hmm. But could you talk about just some of the production, the aesthetic? Like there, there's a real look to it it looks beautiful sure thank you very much yeah it's interesting because it's a movie about a, an alcoholic ex-cop who finds a badly beaten body of a girl on the side of the road after a night-long bender races her to the hospital uh, she passes away and then he becomes obsessed with finding her killer so it's a great setup it's classic noir treading into western territory nice which is really cool the cars in the movie play a big part sort of like the horses everything sort of parallels it's, it's a really interesting film and it's supposed to be set like maybe the Central Valley of California. We shot in Utah, 
So it's sort of nondescript aside from the mountains, but beautiful scenic vistas. And I wanted to craft an image that was sort of Rockwellian at times, but then you had the underbelly of the, the small town. So there was this juxtaposition of, you know, sort of a nice small town with what happens just below the surface. So it's if Norman Rockwell had painted American Gothic. Exactly. Yes. That's, that's a great comparison. Maybe I can get them to put that in the literature Use for it. the movie. Um, it's yours. Yeah. So, so that's what we did. And I chose to shoot on the Sony F55 because I've been a big fan of that camera. And it's so clean. And sometimes with that camera, it's because they render colors so accurately. Sometimes I feel like it almost feels plasticky because I feel like you see more cam- colors through that camera than you do with your actual eye. Yeah. So I knew I was going to use that particular camera because I, I just liked what I've been able to do with it in the past. You own one, correct? I do own one, yeah. yeah. And then what I did was me and the DIT crafted a lot in the parking lot two days before the shoot because that's what you do on a bigger movie. <laughs> uh, so we did that and I was really happy where the LUT landed me. And then I decided that on top of that, I was going to uh, filter more so than I've ever filtered on a movie. Like on-camera filters? On-camera filters, yeah. I shot the entire thing exterior, always with a polo, which I I generally do anyway. But on top of that, I did antique suede filters. What is that? I haven't even heard of an antique suede filter. So antique suede filter, and the funny part about this is this goes back to Rodney Charters. Mm -hmm. Rodney Charters used antique suede filters on the first season of 24. Nice. And I remember reading that in college, and so several years, about... I don't know, probably about 2011, I went out and picked up a set of them and I shot with them on Lost on Purpose. So what does that look give you? So it's it's a very leathery, it's it's uh, it's got a great a color tonation to it. I think tobacco and leather is like, if, if you can picture tobacco and leather, that's sort of the gradation. It's, it's a warm filter. And it did some real interesting things because by the time that I applied that and the LUT, I shot the entire movie at 5,600 degrees, mm-hmm. Kelvin. Interiors, exteriors, daytime, night, everything was 5,600. And mysteriously, it worked out. Everything <laughs> was great. But yeah, I never changed color temperature, and the filters were really interesting. So obvious question to me, but why would you use an on-camera filter if you, like, what is an on-camera filter doing that post-color correction could not do? Well, it's funny, because I'm going to say the same thing that Rachel Morrison said the other day. Bring it. Where... In her experience, she said directors, but in my experience, producers, they fall in love with the image they see. Oh, yeah. And there's no imagination beyond that. And so I wanted to, this was this was a baby to me. This was a movie where I got to sort of get off my leash and go, you know, in a direction that I maybe would have gone in college, you know, something a little more contrasty, a little, something a little more interesting. I got to yeah. play it less safe than I normally would. Nice. And so for me, it was fun. So it was like, I'm going to lock in a look and... I'm going to my DIT, my first AC, John Waterman, who's amazing. I've done a couple movies with him. He's out of Chicago and he also serves as a DIT. So he had a whole setup that he brought. It was the first time I've ever just been able to sit in my tent, have my two monitors for my A and B camera because we shot two cameras at all times mm-hmm. and run a live grade. So I was able to set my exposure on the cameras and then I could adjust my black level, my highlights and you know fudge the color a little bit so I could get it as close as I wanted it. So heading into post, the directors and the producers, everybody looking at it would have an idea of where the movie should be in the end. And if you see the final movie compared to our dailies, it's pretty damn close. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. I, I, I do wonder about the the use of an on-camera filter sometimes, although, you know, I do, I mean, obviously a polarizer makes perfect sense because if you want the skies to be blue or you mm-hmm. want to get rid of reflections, like stuff that you just can't do in post, really. Yeah. 
but there's so much you can do in post if you have resolve or whatever like that. But I still see a lot of people using, you know, on camera filters. Um, And I always, for the most part, use a diffusion filter too. Like on that movie and the last two movies prior to that, I I used a uh, one half HD classic soft. Nice. Which I, I really love. It just sort of rounds off the highlights and softens the skin tones a little bit, but it's nothing nothing too heavy, like a Black Pro Mist or something like that. Have you ever like said, like, okay, I'm going to shoot that clean and I'm going to shoot it with the filter and I'm going to see if I can get that look in post without without the filter? I actually haven't, but I've, I've done the challenge for myself where when the Hollywood Black Magic filters uh, mm-hmm. were really popular, I went out and bought one of those because those are a level of the HD Classic Soft plus, I think, Black Pro Mist or Black Frost, yeah. one of the two. And everybody was really hot on them and I was shooting a project and I a beat it like trying to decide if I was going to stick with my HD classic soft or that. And I, I went back to the HD classic soft. I really like the look of it. So I still have the Hollywood black magic filters, which are great filters, Yeah. but to my sensibility and my taste, you know, the HD classic soft was sort of where it was. So let's talk about this 12 rising stars of cinematography that of, of which you are a part of the constellation. That's right. I like to think of myself as Mr. February since there's 12 of us. <laughs> Why do you give yourself the shortest month? Because it's my birth month. Oh, fair enough. I'm page 16 in case you're interested. Page 16 of the American cinematographer that features uh, the, the new Star Wars movie on the cover. So if this gets out while that's still on the stands, check it out. Please go buy a copy. Buy a copy. So you ended up in there because of small town crime. Did I mean, like, did you lobby to be this or does American cinematographer send people out to scout for people to be in this? You know, according to the, according to the little description in the magazine, they've, they scoured over countless things to, to find countless. Us 12 cinematographers. Nice. I personally did not lobby. I don't know if there was some lobbying for me, uh, uh, but, uh, somehow I was found and I'm in the magazine. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. So do you know the other cinematographers that are on this list? So I don't, and and that sort of leads me to a funny thing. Years ago when I was in college, I had decided that when I looked around the room and say there was 25 of us in the room in a cinematography class, only one of us was going to be the one who made it and could succeed because I know the numbers are not really huge for people who actually come out here and, <laughs> and do because, it. And because as we all know, success is like in a bucket. And if one person takes a cup of success out of that bucket, then that's less success for everyone Right. And else. unfortunately, it's that, a fact. It's that, science. That was my mindset at the time. And so I was sort of cutthroat. I, I did not have any other friends who were cinematographers like walking and like fogging their film behind them <laughs> yeah none of that but i was driven <laughs> i really wanted to be the guy who yeah. made it because it's it was my chosen profession at that point so over the last few years i've realized that there's there's been some opportunities i've missed because there's you have countless opportunities to learn from other people yeah of course and and just like i said over the last couple of years i've met a couple cinematographers and become friendly with them and you know, even if they're at a lower position than you or a higher position than you, there's something you can learn from everybody. And I learn things from gaffers that I work with, from crew guys that I work with. You know, when you're a DP, you do a couple movies a year, a lot of commercials, whatever you do. But these guys are grinding every single day. And yeah, so they yeah. work with a ton of DPs. And that was one of the things that I never had because I declared myself a DP as soon as I was out of college because I shot a lot. I never worked with other DPs. So I never had the chance to be on set, especially in bigger movies and watch bigger DPs work. So for me, I'm sort of reverse engineering everything. I'm doing it and I'm figuring it out and I'm getting the looks that I want and producers and directors are happy with my work. And and I think the work speaks for itself, but I'm sort of doing it backwards because I don't have that experience of working under someone and working my way up. 
So you you were telling me you've been reaching out to these cinematographers? Yeah. So I the other day I took it upon myself to reach out to each and every one of the DPs in this magazine and say, hey, we've both been featured in the magazine. I, I looked at some of your work. So I went and I looked at all their websites and, and checked them out and learned a little bit about them and reached out to them, sent them all a personal message. And I said, hey, if you are in L.A. or if you're visiting L.A., let's let's go get a drink. And I'd love to know, you know, about your career, your tra- trajectory and, you know love to learn some stuff from you so and if there's one thing i've learned doing this podcast it's that literally every cinematographer's website is about two years out of date oh mine's five i think at this five point. years well not the not the reels five years out of date exactly the website's beautiful <laughs> johnnydurango.com oh you'll get your chance oh i'm, you'll, I'm you'll, gonna plug it multiple times you'll get another chance uh <laughs> that's awesome yeah, well, uh, I don't know if you heard on the, on the podcast, but uh, a few months ago I had the crazy uh, moment of meeting Steven Spielberg in uh, shit all my pants. And one of the things he said is whenever he's nominated for an award, he sends a gift bag to or a gift basket to every other director who's nominated. I did remember hearing that. And uh, my friend Janelle, who had brought me to to the Q&A about the post, she, she was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's pretty sweet. He's like, well, you know, us directors, we've got to stick together, man. We're all doing the same thing. And it was like. Really? Because you're like at the top of Mount Olympus, but it really it's, it's, it's amazing yeah. because those are the smart people. I mean, uh, I think a lot of it is like, like I said, I grew up in a conservative Christian family. I consider myself Christian. And I think, yeah. you know, the tenets of the, the religion, you know, are serving others and humility. And for me, I'm I approach it with a humility. I, mm-hmm. I want to learn from everyone else. When I run a set, I'm the furthest thing in the world from a screamer. I want everybody to know that they're there because they want to be there. I expect yeah. you to work your ass off, but I want you to have a smile on your face and I want you to want to be there. And at the end of the day, if you don't fit that mold, it's it's all right. There's there's someplace else for you. It's not on my set, but I, I want people who want to be there. So as a Christian in, in Hollywood, how do you find working in our godless town? I don't I don't know how else to put it. Like I I know a lot of people who are religious, but like my one of my closest friends is an evangelical mm-hmm. and she and her husband moved back to Atlanta so that where they could work doing mostly like Christiany Christian sure. stuff. But like does your religion inform the kind of material that you choose to work on or or is It it absolutely does. So I received a cold call one day to come in and interview with the original director of I Spit on Your Grave. Oh, nice. He was making a sequel, a direct sequel that he was going to direct himself to the original, to from the the original 70s? movie from the 70s not, about the character's daughter. So not the remake of I Spit on Your Grave, which had two sequels of its own. No, this is this is a direct sequel, and I'm not sure if it's come out yet. Um, Mind blown. It's but, like the guy who made The Wicker Man after they remade The Wicker Man made a sequel to the original Wicker Man. Anyway, it's crazy. So I went and I interviewed with him and we had a great interview and I talked about being a producer and I think his son who was producing was that that's another thing that I've learned. Being a producer has helped me when I go to interview and meet with other producers yeah. because I can say I understand what you're going through. I'm not a DP who's shooting this movie to build my reel because I've run across that a lot where there's DPs who are just shooting stuff to build the reel to show off what they can do. Yeah, I want the movie to look as beautiful as possible, but I also know that there's budget constraints and there's reasons why you can't have certain gear, can't do certain things. And as a DP, I think that helps me because I understand the confines of what I'm doing and I don't push for stuff that's going to take away from the production. Because in the end, a great movie that doesn't have a crane shot is still a great movie. Yeah. A shitty movie with a crane shot doesn't matter because nobody cares. I've seen a lot of shitty movies with amazing crane shots. Absolutely. 
but but for me uh so i went and i talked to them about the movie and then they sent me like a brief synopsis of the movie and i was just like all right this is this is not my thing Mm -hmm. and so yeah it, it does inform sort of the decisions that i make but i'm also a fan of cinema and i don't not take a movie unless it is so diametrically opposed to what i believe fair enough Cool. I, I think it's interesting because honestly, I don't think we've ever even talked with anyone about religion on here. And I, I feel like it's got to be weird to be to be religious or I don't know. Not yeah, I don't even know that I would use the word religious. I mean, it's it's sort of who I am at my core, but it's yeah. not something that I even routinely talk about. You know, yeah, like my friends who, who moved back to Atlanta, they're like evangelicals and wanted to make evangelical religious films. Gotcha. And there's fewer opportunities for that out here. And, you know, it's really interesting because I saw risen i don't know if you've seen risen i have not but i was blown away i i assume because there's a lot of bad christian films like when you get to uh, any niche market i feel like you know the the people who are financing it or the people who are making it you're just you're just choosing from a smaller pool of people sure but when i saw risen i was blown away by the quality of the filmmaking and the story itself it was actually a really great film so but i mean that's like the kind of thing i don't think you need to hammer home something just to the point of it being christian or religious yeah. i think that it, it's kind of cool if you can do it well you can in a have way that's obviously a movie can, can have any kind of uh any kind of moral without being propaganda for one you know like good drama is never propaganda well i mean i think you could call hacksaw ridge a christian film definitely yeah so i mean that kind of stuff where you're not hammering home a message outright and it's appeals to mass audiences i think that's kind of a cool way to approach it Absolutely. So that's cool. What's interesting about stuff like that is like, is it a part of your story, which it clearly is at least a small part of your story, maybe a bigger part of your story than, than you're talking about. Like mm-hmm. Rachel, we've had a few women on, but Rachel was the first one who we ever actually talked to about how being a woman in Hollywood was part of her story. Sure. When we had Jendra Jarnigan on, I forced the issue and she gave me some information and kind of talked about it a little bit. And then like the next day, I'm like, that's just not your story, is it? And I emailed her. I'm like, right. do you think it's it's part of your story as a cinematographer? She's like, not really. And I'm like, then I'm just going to cut it all out. So when people bring stuff like that, I just as a, uh, a godless atheist, I don't usually walk around thinking about religion or religious films. Sure. But obviously there's, you know, I'm in I'm in the vast minority as that kind of a person. Although there's maybe more of us out here than, you know, spread throughout the country. Sure. But it's interesting to me when someone's got that in their life and it's important enough to inform the, the art that they want to make. Sure. But it's, it's not something, obviously, that I bring up in an interview that I talk about. I like to think the way that you see it through me is just the way I treat people and the way I act and the humility that I have because I'm not out. There's a PA on the set. There, I'm no more important than the PA. Exactly. Maybe, maybe by the production's view. Sure. But in my mind, we're, we're all the same, you know? Well, yeah. And, and I mean, there's no excuse for yelling at anyone on a film set at all. And, you know, I've been yelled at and I've been on sets where people are yelling at people. And I'm like, you know, like you're just asserting your power over somebody else and there's no point in it. And the thing is, most times when I see that happen, it's people who are insecure with themselves. Yeah. And they're trying to convince everybody else that they're important. The guys that I really respect are the people who are so good at what they do that they don't have to do that. People just naturally gravitate towards them because they're good leaders well yeah and when you hear about like the people who are really successful you don't you will hear about a few screamers but you know like the clint eastwoods of the world the steven spielbergs of the world i've never been to any of their sets but when you hear about their sets you hear that it's just like a fine oiled machine and everyone's doing their job and no one's losing their cool and everyone's got their head around you know i mean if you if you picked a director and you said who do you want to work with it'd probably be ron howard 
Ron Howard seems like the nicest guy on the planet. I've worked and, with him. Okay. Yeah, he he's is the nicest the nice, guy on the planet. He's super nice. He's exactly the way you think he is, except he curses more. Nice. Yeah. So that, that's what I want. I want to cultivate a set, you know, an atmosphere that people are happy to be there. They want to work because they enjoy what they're doing. They feel like they're contributing. I think Rachel even said that, or yeah. maybe it was somebody else. But yeah, to let to empower people. And But you still better bust your ass for me, or you're going to be gone. It's fun working with directors who are talented and know their strengths. Like the Nelms brothers, who I, I've done three movies with, they storyboard Esham, uh, who is a storyboard artist by trade, storyboards every single frame. And the thing that I love about that is it frees me up to light. That's awesome. Because lighting, lighting, you asked earlier yeah. what I approach first, and I try not to approach one or the other first, but lighting is absolutely where my heart is. It's my favorite thing. It's the thing that I've done from the very beginning. And I think it's what makes you a DP. Now, I've heard a lot of DPs recently say that they're camera operators or they framing and that. But I think lighting is what sets you apart as a DP. Mm-hmm. And so I love working with them because knowing what every single shot is going to be allows me to use my other part of the brain to light it. Interesting. Interesting. That's the same same reason why I don't operate. Well, and it's a question that I used to ask and I don't ask as often, but uh, because I, I don't know. I don't know why. It, it, I, some people didn't really have an answer to it. But if you were to go off into a laboratory and make a director who is perfect for working with you, mm-hmm. what what would be some of the aspects of that director? So again, I, the most important thing is a director who has a clear vision. That to me is the most important thing by far. I was just reading, I, I had done a project for Panasonic to launch their EVA-1 camera. Mm-hmm. It was a short film called Radio 88. And when I was prepping that, I'm a big fan of Robert Richardson and his oh, yeah. work, especially one of my favorite movies. It was the first movie I saw when I went away to college was Bringing Out the Dead. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I love that film. It's just absolutely perfect, in my opinion, visually. And so I went back to read the American Cinematographer article because I wanted to know what filtration he used. And as I'm reading... All of it. <laughs> right. Uh, it was Black Pro Mists, right? For yeah. the highlights. And as I'm reading it, I realized that he basically said the same thing that I'm saying about the Nelms Brothers, where... Scorsese is choosing the shots. He's got the shots. He knows exactly what he wants. So as a DP, even though, you know, you can contribute, you can say, you know, I think this might work better. This might work better. Working with a director who has a clear vision, they've already decided what the shot's going to be. You just make that even better. And it's cool to have a jumping off point to go from. I've worked with other directors where I've made the entire shot list before. And that's not as fun for me because there's not a collaboration. You you show up at the shot list and go, I think this works. When you have a director with a clear vision, then you can just add on to that. It just makes it that much better. I feel like when I'm directing, like one of my grim tasks is always coming in with some kind of a shot list. And if I don't do it, I'm going to feel like an asshole all day because I won't know what we're doing next. Yeah. Like I, I have worked with DPs who are used to used to doing that stuff Mm -hmm. and when that's the case you know like i worked with walt lloyd once and he and i would just meet before the shoot and come up with the with the shot list because i I can't imagine what it's like to work without a shot list unless Mm -hmm. you're making a documentary even then have some idea it's crazy yeah i have an entire book at home uh from small town crime with every frame in the film really yeah Uh, the the storyboards that the directors made yep sweet and they draw them themselves yeah it's amazing esham was a career storyboard artist that's what he did to pay the bills and uh yeah, he will go to set day of if he hasn't had the chance, proper pre-production time. We'll get there an hour or two early and we'll draw out every single frame at the location. That's interesting to hear, though, because uh, I, I do talk to some cinematographers who they want to kind of put their imprint on the look of the film from the beginning. And they want to they want to help kind of plan it out. 
And, uh, you know, I'm sure that even with those directors, there's, you probably have days where it's like, oh shit, the sun's going down and this prop didn't show up and you, you have to scramble and figure out some, some alternate plan at the last minute. Sure. I mean, do you think that having that foundation is kind of what gets you through even at that moment when you're like, well, we, we have to trash these five shots. What do you do? Right. Because you can condense, you know what you have, you know how the movie cuts. When you have a director who knows exactly what they want, they know how that movie cuts in their mind. Yeah. So they can take five minutes, step away from set and recut that movie in their head and you just get the shots you need to make it work which is awesome well I think that's a great place for us to leave it uh, where can people find you online I know you mentioned it already but go ahead and mention you can it find again. me at johnnydurango.com nice j-o-h-n-n-y d-e-r-a-n-g-o.com it's a pretty cool name thanks yes you can also find me on Instagram at johnnydurangodp and I believe it's the same thing on Twitter if you, if you search Johnny Durango, I'm, I'm the only one. <laughs> well, Johnny Durango, thank you so much for coming down and uh, can't wait to see your film. Thank you guys for having me. So that was Johnny Durango. Thanks a million, Johnny. I can't wait to have you back on the show and talk about like all the awesome places your career is about to go. Agreed. So, uh, Ilya, before we move forward, time to pay the bills. That's right. Airy, wonderful sponsor, supporter of the show. They have uh, just had maybe their best NAB in a while. Their booth was packed. I, I actually talked to someone in it at NAB and they were like, oh no, actually Aries was very, very empty. No, not true at all. Aries booth, really, really popular. Uh, a lot of people going to take a look at the new LF camera. A lot of people taking a look at their new full spectrum. As we like to call it, the Larry Fong. That's right. The Larry Fong camera. I'm sure that's what Larry would like to call it too. Yeah. That's but, what Larry did call it. In fact, uh, Aries got a new set of uh, full spectrum ND filters that uh, are shipping and they're really, really amazing uh, filters. And let me tell you, there are uh, a lot of different filter manufacturers out there and I have not yet gotten to do the Pepsi challenge on the Airy full spectrum NDs, but supposedly these are the same NDs that exist inside their cameras, but they're now making them available to anyone who would like to purchase them and put them in front of their lenses. And they claim extreme neutrality and massive amounts of IR blocking. So, uh, yeah, these are, uh, they are the Switzerland of camera filters. They are extremely neutral. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And dense. I think I just called all of the Swiss people dense. Uh, Fine, uh, I'll own it. But they're neutral, too. Come and get me, Swiss. So so anyway, uh, really cool filters. Looking forward to trying them out. And now available in to, for use in cameras, on cameras that are not Airy cameras. Awesome. Awesome. I love it when Airy products can be used by anything. They, they do that with a lot of products these days. They, it makes everything better. Airy just makes filmmaking more awesome. So, so, Ben, it's time for the war story. All right. Who is our war story from? The war story is from Jaron Precent. He is a fascinating guy. He's done second unit on literally every Ryan Johnson movie. Yes, including Last Jedi. Yes. Very tight with uh, with uh, Steve Yedlin, who shoots all of his films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he also shot the brand new blockbuster Rampage. In theaters now, you can immediately go watch that. So if you listen to this episode and go to your local theater, boom, there's Rampage. And his war story, I just want to say, is totally bananas. And here it is. And now, war stories. On one of the first jobs that I was ever on, it was this docudrama for HBO. I'm like the camera PA, and I'm, I think, 16 or something like that. They kind of threw me into the camera department because they knew I liked camera. I hadn't really done much of anything at this point. 
the first AC was kind of hard on me, but I saw it for what it was like. I got to learn how to be on these sets. So we had a location move this one day and we go to lunch and I go to the, the honey wagon to go use the bathroom and the stairs aren't down. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird, but I got to go to the bathroom. So I climb up into the bathroom and, I'm, and I <laughs> sit down and all of a sudden I hear this. <laughs> No, the, 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 the engine starts and I'm like whoa wait 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 no 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 and by the time I get to the door the PCH is just flying by and I'm in the honey wagon <laughs> being taken to second location <laughs> and remember I'm 16 I'm like this kid and I'm like oh god I'm never this is gonna be really great So I get to the second location and car parks and I feebly open the door and I step down and I hear the teamster go, what the? And I'm like, uh, hi, I, I, um, I need a ride back to first location. <laughs> and so they get me a ride back to the first location and I show up and walk down the set. And the first AC just starts ripping. Where the hell do you think you've been? Do you think you can just tool off and you don't think? And I was like, um, I um, I was uh, locked in the honey wagon. Took the second location. And he just stops dead. And, I'm like, and I look at him. I'm like, please don't tell anyone. <laughs> you know? And within about 20 minutes, it was all over the set. <laughs> Good to have a thick skin, but um, it was, uh, and don't go in the honey wagon, you know, if the stairs aren't, aren't down. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's perfect. And now, short ends. That was Jaron Precent. Thanks a lot, Jaron. You're awesome. And uh, and uh, right now, go see Rampage in theaters. And when his uh, name comes up on the screen, I want a big a round of applause for Jaron. So, Ilya, what is your short end this week? My short end this week is uh, super nerdy. It is uh, it's nerdy. But if you happen to live in the Pacific Northwest, like the Portland area or maybe somewhere not too far from Portland, and you're interested in sort of the technical side of the motion picture industry, you can come to the Kerner Camera Cinema Lens Summit on May 5th. And that's where I'm going to be. So, uh, so tell me a little bit about this uh, shindig. This summit. Yeah, the Cinema Lens Summit is kind of an excuse for everyone who's into cinema lenses to get together uh, on a Saturday. And the whole thing is hosted by... It's Kerner. like a beautiful day outside. The sun's out. Kids are playing. You're in a dark, dark, dank... You know what? You cannot describe Kerner Camera as dark or dank. That place is beautiful. It is the premier camera rental facility in the Pacific Northwest in, mm. in Portland. I know there's a couple of others out there, but let me tell you, Kerner is the gold standard up there. Very impressive. And they buy everyone lunch, or actually one of the sponsors buys everyone lunch, and you get to get hands-on and test and try basically every major cinema lens 
brand all at the same time. And that's kind of hard to do. They give you cameras, they give you a model. You can uh, roll some footage on the cameras. You can take it home with you if you want to compare different things. It's it's uh, super nerdy. But for people who are in this industry or part of like the optics part of the industry, there's nothing else like it. So if someone's in the Pacific Northwest and goes to this and they see you, what will you give them if they say the right thing that you're about to tell? What's the what's the the password to get the thing that you're going to give them? The Cinematography Podcast. Come up to me, say the Cinematography Podcast, and I'll find something cool for you. All right. That's pretty sweet. That is sweet. It'll be a surprise. <laughs> so people get on that. It will not be a large sack of money, if that's what you're wondering. But uh, <laughs> Maybe like some kind of swag, like a sticker or... Uh... Yeah, we might go better than that. But yeah, right. yeah, yeah there's, there's some stuff. So Ben, what's, uh, what's your short end this week? My short end, unsurprisingly, is the films of Dario Argento. And I uh, recently, uh, you know, maybe it's the expectant fatherhood and I'm trying to get in all of the best uh, super violent Italian giallo uh, movies out of out of my system for a while because they might not be great for the baby. Maybe the baby won't care. I don't know. Is this the father of Asia Argento? Asia Argento, yes. Oh, Asia. I'm sorry. Yes. I, didn't, I didn't know what, how that was pronounced. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, he actually is. And she kind of started out working in his films. Mm. Um, so probably best known for uh, the extremely super bloody and violent Suspiria. But in the last week, and this is truly, this is my pet obsession of the week, I've been finding his stuff on the other online services that I have. So for instance, on uh, Amazon, I found opera which is from 1987 and i remember when in 1987 i was a a a young a young high school kid uh and this movie seemed like the most transgressive thing ever i mean basically it's a super violent bloody whodunit that's what giallo movies are they're kind of like where whodunit movies meet horror and splatter and they are crazy 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 fucking violent um but i i was like probably like a lot of people when I'm watching a movie, I also have my phone in my hand sometimes. And I was like, who shot this? And what else has this person shot? Did you just admit to being a millennial? Uh, I wish that I could admit to being a millennial. I'm firmly in generation X, but I'll take it. I think you just accused me of being 10 years younger than I am. And I'll take it. I think it was 25 years younger, but maybe. Eh. Yeah. I'm not that old. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Anyway. So, okay. So you're watching it. You're watching this movie with a phone in your hand. I'm watching Dario. Well, a lot of times I'll look up to see who shot any given movie when I'm watching. You're so into the movie that you stop watching it to look up who shot. this. No, I'm just like, who shot? Like, what else did the person who shot Dario Argento's opera shoot? Okay. And it's a, a, a gentleman named Ronnie Taylor, who I believe is still alive, although he is ancient. He's, he was born in 1924. Wow. So he's getting up there. He also shot Gandhi. Whoa. Gandhi, which came out five years earlier. So he went from Gandhi to Dario Argento's opera, which I'm going to call an upgrade. Um, another one that I, <laughs> an upgrade over Academy Award winning Gandhi. Oh, who cares? And Ben Kingsley, Gandhi. When's the last time you watched Gandhi? I rest my case. <laughs> um, <laughs> Your case is rested. OK, got it. OK, so, yes. And I think that's true. I actually heard someone say the other day that they didn't think Gandhi was a good movie because it doesn't bear to repeat viewing. I think it's a perfectly good movie. I'm saying that a guy who was good enough to shoot Gandhi was shooting for Dario Argento around the same time. Another one that I watched that I had never seen back then uh, is one called Tenebrae, which is also a uh, it, it's a giallo. It's it's a violent whodunit. And it's it almost sounds like a Stephen King premise where it's about uh, a guy who wrote violent books like a Stephen King type character who's who a crazy killer is reenacting the murders from his books while he's on a press tour in Italy. And they're trying to find, you know, find out who did it. 
Um, the thing about Dario Argento's movies, and I think a lot of Italian cinema at that time, is when you watch them today, like if you watch opera, it ends on a super weird note. And when you watch Tenebrae, it kind of ends very suddenly. And a lot of the set pieces within these movies, or if you watch Suspiria or The Beyond or you know any of the movies of like Fulci or Bava or Argento, is they kind of don't function structurally like regular movies do. They kind of function like nightmares. So after you're done watching them, like you, you might kind of have a head scratch there. Like that didn't make a lot of narrative direct linear sense in the way that I'm used to, you know, I sit down, you know, and I watch my Spider-Man and it makes, you know, it's like beginning, middle end, bad guy, good guy, big fight at the end, blah, blah, blah. These movies don't function like that. Or even, even like a perfectly written movie, like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Ghost or whatever, like movies like that. These movies function in like they're oddly paced. The characterizations are done in a different way. Some might say kind of an, a, 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 it's a weirder way. A lot of times a character will come out of nowhere. There's a character in Suspiria played by Udo Kier who comes out for exactly one scene, gives a bunch of exposition and goes away. And sometimes when I'm watching these movies, the beyond I think is a good example of it. The logic that they're functioning on is not the narrative logic that we're used to, but it's more like the next day you, you remember you know, the scene where the librarian fell over on the on the uh, ladder and couldn't move and the spiders crept in and, and ate her face or the blind guy who's attacked by his seeing eye dog. They're all like very violent, weird nightmare images. And uh, I, I don't know. I think that maybe it's worth looking into uh, as, as I feel like American cinema gets, you know, more and more profitable in certain ways, in, in the ways that it knows how to do. It's sometimes fun to look at these movies that attack these situations because in my opinion this is my opinion movies kind of function like memory edit you edit your memory that's that's why movies i think resonate so much with us um to look at a movie that functions in an erratic way uh and and works on a on a different nerve narratively than we're used used to watching and so to me it's been kind of fun to delve into sort of what i would consider to be the golden age of dario argento although he's still alive and still makes movies I think you bring up a, a really interesting subject there, and I would be remiss if I didn't just chime in for a second that I think that some of this might be cultural and that we could actually have a whole conversation about the culture, different countries' culture and the films, the, how they reflect them. Oh, to be sure. And uh, I, I definitely think that, yeah, I mean, there's a reason that French movies have a, have a reputation for being a, a particular... A particular je ne sais quoi, a particular, you know, something that you that's a bit different or a different note yeah. than than other world cinemas, uh, uh, you know, Japanese movies, particularly Japanese horror is its own sort of genre of stuff, too. But I think each culture and you could actually make the the case too that not only their, their horror films, their horror films kind of inform their society, but also their pornography, the pornography and the horror has and somehow something you want to tell me. <laughs> I think we've actually had this conversation before, so I'm just bringing it up again. But it's like, uh, yeah, there's um, there is uh, a certain undercurrent of uh, society that kind of goes through media and goes through the fiction and goes through the stories and goes through the, through the different representations. And uh, I, I think that if you look back at, uh, you know, Italian uh, neorealism in particular, mm-hmm. too. 
there's a lot of like elements of tragedy that goes through that. And I think that that tragedy and your, your, your horror mystery giallo sort of stuff you're talking about, they in some ways inform each other. So uh, I think that, uh, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what the answer is, but it's, well, there is no solution. But there's a, there's a film theory class that I took maybe 20 years ago coming out of me right now. So, well, and I, I mentioned this, uh, in an, I mentioned this to one of our guests in an upcoming episode. We'll see if it makes the cut, but like, I've been thinking a lot about that lately about, um, the cultural artifacts that we're leaving behind in, in this day and age where you have things like YouTube and you have vloggers and they're, you know, so assuming we don't have an electromagnetic pulse that wipes out YouTube. In fact, assuming technology just keeps getting better and better and this stuff becomes more and more permanent. Like today you and I can read a Shakespeare play, but we can't see the performance that was done at the globe theater. But 500 years from now, assuming the technology would exist, somebody can like access Logan Paul's vlogging channel on YouTube. And what does that say about us as a culture that we chose to watch that, that we chose that narrative as the thing that we were interested in, or even our current cultural obsession with superhero movies and the success of the Marvel movies. Like I was talking to a friend of mine, there's a great book that was written after World War II called uh, From Caligari to Hitler, which sort of talks about how early German cinema presages uh the the rise of the third reich and what the german people were looking for and it's a great book and i made half a joke to a friend of mine that now my friend and i are talking about i was like well i could write from batman to trump like what and i'm not being anyone who knows me knows exactly where i stand politically on this stuff but it's like who knew that we wanted a crazy billionaire who had unlimited resources who to be our leader to be our leader who thought that all of the authorities in the world were idiots turns out we did turns out we did as a as a as a nation. yeah maybe not me maybe not you but you know like like i i actually think that there's if there was a line from from the cabinet of dr caligari to the rise of hitler i mean it's not a straight line and it's always looking backwards then you so could say not, there's a rise from batman to yeah, trump it's like it's not predictive i can't say well ant-man did well so you know we're gonna you know we're gonna hire a you know a, an insect anyway i i do think that there's something interesting about that and when you talk about genres in different countries you know, like the Koreans have great horror movies, for instance, like that there was one that just came out a couple of years ago called Train to Busan. Mm. But when you watch a Korean horror movie, get used to some slapstick comedy because that's in all of them. Mm. Oh, yeah. You know, and you wouldn't see in uh, A Quiet Place if there was a big kind of corn pone uh, uh, slapstick sequence, uh, audiences would turn right the fuck off immediately. Yeah. Uh, Indian Indian films and their musicals, too. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, just just know that that's coming that's going to be part of it when i was a projectionist this indian company used to rent out uh one theater at the, at the theater that i worked at it was a multiplex and you could usually put a movie on a platter which could hold like probably six or seven reels mm-hmm. it would take two to hold every indian movie and i would sit there and watch them and i was like it was it was blowing my mind because they uh, the ones that that they brought in and i know this isn't all indian cinema but a lot of them were like super violent very religious musicals that you you just couldn't like those those wires don't cross here in the same way yeah they might have been violent but there was no there wasn't a lot of blood or guts that was like yeah that that i mean and and very little kissing i mean that's oh well there's no kissing in yeah and and they're all like three and a half hours long or longer 
yeah, long movies. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, but there's again it's the 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 media, the culture informs the society, and then vice versa. There's something that is there's a give and take that's happening there. And so here, I thought we were going to have these short little short ends here at the end of, the, and then instead we got into this deep philosophical conversation about culture and media. I can't wait to see where our next episode goes. This is yeah, this we'll is see. Next one will fix racism. So so Ilya, <laughs> where can people find you online? Oh man, you can find me at hotrodcameras.com. Um, you can find me at, uh, Twitter on Neptune salad. You can also find me on Facebook. You can go to my website, which is, uh, benrockonline.com. Uh, and before we go, wait, I lied. You can find me elsewhere too. That's just my, my company website. Oh, so I guess you can. Well, apparently that. they can find you at this friggin' conference in the Pacific Northwest. That's right. They can find me in the cinema lens summit and, uh, also Instagram just under Ilya Friedman and Twitter, Ilya Friedman and Facebook, Ilya Friedman. All right, so I have a big ask of our audience right yes, now. Yes, ask away. So I was having lunch with Kay Zalatrakshi. Who, what? Our, our composer? Who has, yes, as I said, he's he's done every scrap of music that's been in every episode. And, so far. And I said, has anyone ever reached out to you because of the cinematography podcast? And he said, no. Now, I have no idea if if 100 people start an episode of this, uh, are do we have 20 of them right now? But I'm asking literally anyone, reach out to Kay's. Go to www.musicbyks.com, K-A-Y-S.com, and just ask him anything, but tell him that you heard his music on the Cinematography Podcast and you liked it. You will blow his mind. Please, somebody, reach out to Kays. He's He's been so generous to us and to you. <laughs> and, of course, you can also do some other things for us. I mean, as long as we're asking. But fine, fine. What else would you have our, our people do? Let's get, let's get these jerks to work here. <laughs> You're calling our listeners jerks. Well, it works for Jason Mansukas. Oh my God. Okay. So, uh, you could rate us, you could rate us, you could give a review over on iTunes. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. You could, you could like, like our Facebook page. We're getting close to a thousand. I think yeah. we're, we're, we're just about recommend there. us to a friend. You, oh my God. Recommending to a friend would be awesome. We have some huge, awesome guests coming up, including Leonard Malton. Yeah. Leonard Malton. Oh my God. Leonard Malton. He sat in the same chair I'm sitting in right now. We have. I mean, I'm saying this because we just interviewed him. Russell Carpenter, who shot Titanic. Oh, yes. And lots and lots of other things. Yeah. But he's, you know. Yeah, I know. Titanic. Titanic, like, you know, highest grossing movie of all time, Titanic. Yeah. This was for, for a long time. It's a pretty significant body of work, and he's awesome. We have some just amazing guests coming up. So, you know, tell a friend, someone who's into cinematography. If you're listening to us, I assume you're a dork for cinematography in the way that I am. And so hopefully you know some other people who are dorky in that specific way. And even if you don't, we still would love it if you shared it anyway. So uh, to wrap this up, we also would like to thank, besides Kay's, who hopefully you're going to email or something. In addition to that, uh, we just want to say a special thanks to uh, Mike Wilbanks, who's been editing all of our episodes. Mike, 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 Mike. You can find him at Lumos Pictures. And also to Alana Cody, who's been kicking all the ass, including getting us Russell Carpenter. Thanks, Alana. You are definitely keeping the trains running on time, and we've really been cranking these out at a much higher pace, and it's all because of you. And she's also trying her hand at editing. Let's see how that goes. Yeah. Ben, sign off now. Say goodbye. Goodbye, Ben. Goodbye. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.